0: The Science Inside Podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. This next hour is all about the Science Inside. My name is Elna Schutz. And I'm Lebo Khan Madisha. Today we are starting something different, Lebo. I'm very excited. Every week here on the show we talk about science. Of course, we cover the issues explain the concepts and the context, and we talk to the scientists. I mean, scientists are human too, you know? (laughs) Apparently they are, I have heard (laughs) so, despite the many years of training and PhDs and all those fancy things. And that's exactly why we're introducing this new thing, a feature scientist. So once a month, on the very first week of the month, we'll be looking at one person, one scientist in particular. Yes, and we'll have them with us for a full hour and we'll be finding
2: out about what makes them tick, we'll look at their work and its impact, why it's been
1: important and how it works. But we'll also talk to them about their personal journeys from what got them into science in the first place to what they think about the role of scientists and science in South Africa and then along the
2: way we'll meet their mentors and have a peek into their laboratories or their place of
1: work i'm pretty excited about this We yeah. get, get a chance to really dig into people's personal stories just really put a face to science in south africa but also spend some time focusing on a particular field of science today that is public health because our feature scientist today in studio with us is dr shakira shunara yes indeed she works in the public health sector and is
2: currently the obesity prevention coordinator for south africa for the global health advocacy incubator based in washington dc previously she worked on sexual and reproductive health rights in adolescence at the srhr south africa trust dr Chinara holds a phd in public health before which she acquired her honors and masters in demography Right here at the University of the Witwatersrand.
1: As if that wasn't impressive enough to start like, over. Really? Right. <laughs> this um, she she's had some pretty impressive accolades to her name. This year, she was part of the first class of Obama Foundation Africa Leadership Fellows. Last year, she was named Woman of the Year in Healthcare by Women of Stature Network um, within South Africa as well. As if that wasn't enough Um, The next generation female researcher By the National Research Foundation
2: Like really These achievements are amazing And no wonder Destiny Magazine Has listed her as One of the most powerful women Under 40 in South Africa
1: She's definitely inspiring and worth doing a whole show about. So we will be asking her all about her journey, her work, digging into some of the particulars around public health. We will speak to her in just a second. But as always, let's start the show off with taking a look at what's happening in the world of science. This
3: is science Headline. Okay,
1: Lebo, in our science news, what do you have for us?
2: Okay, today we're going to talk about the Department of Science and Technology, DST, working together with the South African Agency for Science and Technology Advant- Advancement, celebrating the annual National Science Week at various facilities across the country. And one of them was at the Johannesburg Zoo, which hosted about 480 learners from different schools in Gauteng. This was aimed at educating them about animals and the environment now the aim for this was also to get uh children to be more interested in science and more scientific career fields always good yeah and we're gonna have bridget le Perry explain that a little bit more for us johannesburg city parks and zoo
4: are the custodians of nature conservation and environmental health. And they seem to be doing a very good job judging from the various conservation programs currently underway. The programs have a breeding and research division to ascertain that they add to the body of knowledge in securing the survival of various animal species. Dr. Arnold Kanengoni, who is a veterinarian and manager of research and veterinarian services, tells us more about the two most recent conservation programs. In the following, he talks about the Pickersgill reed frog.
3: As Johannes Bexu, we have a number of conservation projects. We have the Pickers' Gill reed frog project and the Southern Crown Bill project and the Wattled Crane projects. The Pickers' reed frog is actually only found in a small portion in KwaZulu-Natal. And it's being threatened because of habitat loss, because of pollution because of uh, these uh, massive constructions, housing developments and all that. So they are infringing on the habitat of these frogs. They are a small frog and it's not found anywhere else in the world except here in South Africa. So it is our responsibility and we have been breeding successfully and the next step, of course, is to take the ones that we have bred back into the natural habitats. We collected about around 20 or so and we bred them and will be taken back about 270. But the breeding process is continuing and we will need again to go in different areas as well to collect breeding stock so that you also avoid inbreeding. Because the more you continue to breed, tens of generations, then you run the risk also of inbreeding especially when you start breeding related frogs. Just like with many of these the other species, sometimes we think of them as a nuisance but they are very much part and parcel of the ecosystem. They fulfill some role. Sometimes we may not even understand what those roles are. For example, with frogs. Frogs, they consume, they will eat either aphids or insects and one particular example that has been used really with frogs is they can eat some of the larvae of mosquitoes and all that. So in a way that for us that's a direct relationship in terms of us mosquitoes spread malaria and all. And we may not even be aware that they are playing that critical role and we also know that Some aphids, especially where in KwaZulu Natal, there are some aphids and some insects that attack sugar cane. And frogs help in terms of maintaining that those populations are kept in check. And then we will not, as a result, use too many pesticides and insecticides and everything. And we become more healthy.
4: What makes the pickerel reed frog so unique is their sensitivity to changing environmental and weather conditions. Their presence is said to act as a good indicator of the health status of the ecosystem. Due to mass habitat loss, water pollution and the fatal frog killing tribe fungus, the numbers of these tiny amphibians has been on a steady decline in regions where they are normally known as abundant. Here, my name is Bitzella, who is an avian keeper at the zoo, talks about the challenges with hand-breeding southern ground hornbill
0: birds. So here in the zoo, Henry the second chick, it's a long process because we started from seven days, and seven days is a critical stage. And after reaching the seven days, we started 14 days, and then we passed that critical stage. And then the 21 stages, they started to open the eyes. With the ground hornbill, bill, they are difficult because they are born without feathers. They are altrucial. Working with them is very difficult. Their food, you have to skin all the pinkies. Those are the mice. Catch it tiny, 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 especially when they're still young. 21 days we are relieved if this is still alive. And then every now and then when we're going to check, you cannot feed without checking the poo. You have to check the poo and then check the crop if there's no food. Because if you feed while they're still full, it's a problem. It's either they're going to recruit it or you find that it's not going to poo. You feed every three hours, it depends how the age of the groundhorn hornbill.
4: Dwindling numbers of the species due to destruction of wetlands, rapid urbanization, and the fact that the reproduction among these species is very low has affected the survival rates of the birds. Southern ground hornbills are termed critically endangered under the International Union for Conservation of Nature's criteria as there are only about 1,500 birds in the country. An average of only one chick is raised to adulthood every nine years. Arnold has more.
3: There are certain species especially of birds where they may lay two eggs and when the first one hatches then they will basically neglect the other one. It is a matter of survival when they are out there in the world. However, what we know is it has contributed in terms of the species itself being threatened and not just the southern ground, one it's also similar to the watered crane where Again, other factors also come into play, so the role that we play is is to ensure better efficiency in terms of the, the breeding cycle, so that even the second one will hatch. And then we try to hand raise, but therein now lies the complication. Especially when you are hand raising, when they are with their parents, their parents go around teaching them what to eat, how to eat, and uh, all other behavior. So when you are hand raising now, as a person, you become sort of like the surrogate mother. So it becomes a challenge in the sense that the, in as much as you are trying to show it what to do and how to do it i suppose your humanness comes into it and you may end up with a bird that that will not be able to survive out there so the thing is when you are raising you they have to dress in such a way that they resemble and mimic as much as possible the parent
2: bridget Le Perry for the science inside news johannesburg zoo that was indeed bridget le perry reporting on the National Science Week, which was aimed at contributing towards the development of scientific knowledge while inspiring youth to take interest in scientific careers. I'm
1: all for that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty dope. And the Joburg Zoo is a good place to start because everything is so cute and then you learn about science on top of that. Yeah. So in my new story today, Lebo, um, it's about the soil. And I'm not talking about the band. <laughs> I was about to be like,
2: ooh, okay, nice. we're going to get some music in here.
1: No, unfortunately not. The headline reads, experts say heat wave and climate change is decreasing soil quality. The lead author on this paper from Manchester School of Earth and Environmental Sciences Dr. Francisca de Vries says soil, so the earth, um, the actual soil, <laughs> has highly diverse bacterial communities that are crucial for soil to function as it should. So she and her team have realized that this recent heat wave that has been happening in the UK and in Europe and droughts could be having a much deeper and m- a more negative effect on soil than they initially thought.
2: I mean, not to take away from the seriousness of the situation, but what makes this study so different? Because haven't Earth and environment, environmental rather researchers studied the relationship between climate change and soil before?
1: Uh, yes, because there there has been a particular focus on this, of course, because the soil isn't just important for your little your little daisy in the backyard. It's of course around agriculture and um, and animals. It is quite important, but unlike previous studies, this particular one takes a comprehensive approach to studying soil ecosystems. So it's looking at a multitude of factors um, that. That relate to the interactions between different microbial organisms in the soil not the soil itself so they've realized that there could be a widespread implication um, for plants and other vegetation which in turn may impact the entire ecosystem so the researchers are saying that soil in the UK may not be as tough as they imagined previously apparently organisms in soil are highly diverse and responsible not only for producing the nutrients needed to grow and sustain crops which is the obvious one right, yeah. but it aids in other things like filtering water, anchoring plants, and regulating greenhouse gas emissions. For an, just to make an example, carbon and nitrogen move through ecosystems via individual chemical cycles, but these cycles are tightly linked, meaning that ecological variables like For instance, soil temperature and soil water content, as well as agricultural practices like fertilization and tilling can affect both those things. Thus, land managers start to benefit if they are thinking about solutions that address not just carbon or nitrogen, but both those things at the same time. So how these soil networks respond to such disturbances has been quite a mystery until now and by studying how microbial organisms react to severe drought, the insights provide a better understanding of how these underground soil networks respond to these disturbances. Wow, that is rather deep. Okay, so what did they discover? So beyond this, they found out that extreme weather conditions change vegetation composition and the moisture in the soil is then affected, which also impacts the soils underlying organisms and microbial networks. According to Dr. De Vries, the challenge is to understand how these complex microbial communities respond to and recover from such disturbances, which are predicted to obviously increase given given climate change. Yeah. So now, how were these studies actually conducted? So they sequenced soil DNA for the study, can you believe it or not, at the Center for Ecology and Hydrology. This research team tested four common grassland species and they measured the effects of summer drought on those plant communities. They discovered that drought increased uh, the abundance of certain fast growing drought-tolerant grass and with greater above-ground vegetation comes an increased rate of um, evaporation or evapotranspiration. And, and this is where the cycling of water from plant into the atmosphere then creates a lower overall soil moisture. So um, on another note, Professor Nick Ostler from the Lancaster Environmental Centre says the UK has experienced the hottest 10 years um, in all of the recorded history. And that this current hot dry summer um, that Europe is experiencing at the moment should be a wake up call to prepare for future where the stress is and again this is all related to food security right it's not just scientists playing in the dirt if our soil isn't able to handle these disturbances then then food gets affected so I would love to know if this has been studied similarly in South Africa and also
2: like how long until we feel the real effects because now it's the same chat with climate change you just tell people climate change and they're like "Oh, okay are we know This is happening but when are we gonna start feeling these impacts that wake us up for real i mean it would be sad that we're gonna wake up pretty late in the process but
1: when are these things gonna kick in yo i hear you but i don't think i agree because i think we've seen plenty of things that should wake us up the cape town water crisis the um the plastic crisis in the oceans. You can Google that stuff within seconds. The change, yeah. the change in heat waves, and even in cold fronts. The increased amount of people who've died because Our of weather, weather changes. And yet we sit. These are very obvious changes. These yeah. are things that have been predicted for several years. And yet we sit and we go, yo, it's hot hey?
2: Like, <laughs> That's the best you've got, like yo, dude, it's it's hot now, eh? Hey?
1: Yeah, like, oh, it wasn't like this last year. It feels hotter. Well, Mm. that's kind of what global warming means.
2: I'm just wondering, when is it going to click? When is it just going to hit us like, okay, guys, we're killing ourselves faster than we should be? Because climate change is a thing that's supposed to happen. We're just accelerating it. Mm. So when is it going to hit us that we should probably slow down this rate?
1: I think if you really need something as clear as... The water not coming out of your particular tap, <laughs> then you're doing something wrong. Yeah, no. If, and and that's why I'm so concerned when people talk about Cape Town like it's a different planet. Do you not think? Do you not think that that could happen to Cape your Town tap?
2: low key acts like it is a different planet. <laughs> so I don't know.
1: Eh? <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't help. But I think these kind of studies just show you again that w- these things are always linked. It's always going to come back. We can't look at something like climate change and think, oh, it's Going to affect someone else because yeah. it's not going to. It's going to affect all of us. That was <laughs> quite a negative, quite a negative note <laughs> to end on. So let's quickly jump ahead to something slightly more positive today on the show. We are um, looking at a particular scientist. It's our. Feature Scientist Week in the month, and we're talking to, to Dr. Shakira Shunora. So today we start a new tradition on the show. Once a month, we spend the majority of the show with just one scientist that is doing exceptionally in their field, and we dig into their work as well as their personal journey. Yes, today on our show for August Feature
2: Scientist, we have Dr. Shakira Shunora. Her field is public health. Her medical science meets, where medical science rather, meets practical implementation. She's currently with the Global Health Advocacy Incubator as the obesity prevention coordinator for South Africa. Previously, she worked on sexual and reproductive health rights in adolescents at the SRHR Africa
1: Trust. So on the academic side, uh, she holds an honors and a master's in demography, Right here from but before doing her PhD in public health,
2: and her work has been recognized far and wide, including being part of the first class of Obama Foundation Africa Leadership Fellows this year. And in 2017, she was named Woman of the Year in Healthcare by Women of Stature Network, South Africa, the South African one, that is as well as a next-generation female researcher by the National Research Foundation. Destiny magazine also listed her as a powerful woman under 40 in South Africa.
5: Kind of inspiring. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So nice to have you with us in studio, Shakira. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks, Lebo and Elna.
1: So we will get into your personal journey a little bit later on the show, but Mm -hmm. let's start by talking about some of the science that you work with in terms of public health. And regardless of what exactly one focuses on in particular in public health, whether that's, that's around diet or a particular disease, whatever it might be, There are so many stakeholders that have different views, different needs and opinions about how things should be done. I'm just thinking about the scientists, the doctors, the patients, advocacy groups, and then, of course, the government with their policy. How does one juggle all of these different views and actually come to some solutions?
5: I mean, I think that's quite a tough question and you've pinned down all the right stakeholders. So, um, and, and it's something I've picked up being on the academic side, but also in the advocacy side is how fragmented everything is. So you have the HIV experts working on one hand, you have the obesity experts working on the other hand. And how does this all come together? And for me, a big question in my head um is is how do we make all of this come together for the patient the patient in public health is the most important stakeholder and i feel the situation we're in at the moment government wise advocacy wise research wise is because we've lost that focus we've we've got into our own tiny bubble of this grant this project our future and we're forgetting that right now even while i'm sitting here a patient is dying in baraguana maybe because there's no oxygen there. So for me, that's the most important stakeholder and that should unite all other stakeholders as well. Hmm.
1: That makes a lot of sense and I can get that between all that red tape and different views and also often sort of long running arguments between mm-hmm. <laughs> particular stakeholders. As you say, the most important part, what actually happens to that granny or to that mom in in wherever whichever public hospital, it can it can get lost in the in the cracks. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you though particularly about the role of scientific research within public health. Mm-hmm. Because how important how important of a role does it actually end up playing, um, this this available research in South Africa, is it just in terms of, of advocacy and, um, and changing people's habits or does the real research determine what happens?
5: Well, in theory, it's supposed to, and more recently, so when I started this new job in obesity prevention at the incubator, I went for training in D.C., and I was absolutely blown away because that's when I started seeing it come together. So the incubator has worked on tobacco uh, prevention for over 22 years, so the syntaxes that you see, the cigarette warning labels that you see, uh, they've been behind that, but how have they done that? They've based it on Scientific evidence, so the research is critical because even before you advocate, you need to know what exactly are you advocating for. When you go to the policymaker, you've got to have specific asks. You've got to have specific data. You can't just go to the policymaker and say, "Hey, you know, let's do this." Um, he's going to ask you why. What do you think about it? A more recent example from our work is the sugary beverage tax that was passed. Um, Where did that all come from? It's actually priceless. Uh, So I can't remember the full uh, what they stand for, but they're here at Wits University in the public health department, and they did work around how much you know syntaxes you could raise but what would it mean to bring obesity down if you cut down on sugary beverages and they took this information together with the advocates to the policy makers to actually pass the sugary drinks tax so yes research is very critical and it is being used at the moment mm.
1: and yet it seems like um, to use the example of smoking for instance or mm. even sugary drinks it seems like a lot of people do know these things are bad for them or are wrong, and yet that hasn't made a lot of people stop those habits. So there needs to be, I'm sure, a much broader policy or broader advocacy work around um, around that initial research, but I'm sure it can open up a lot of doors of at least getting getting things rolling.
5: Mm -hmm. definitely I mean there was one um, gentleman he was the vice president of the incubator and I met him in DC and he said you know your generation wouldn't know that sitting in a restaurant there's a smoking and non-smoking section that's where all the research started all the Mm -hmm. advocacy started the policy change happened but then he started changing social norms right now in South Africa we're trying to push um, the the, the bull around the e-cigarettes if you go to Rosebank you're seeing teenagers smoking openly are they affecting us we don't know yet what the scientific link is but it shouldn't be allowed and so we've seen how it's working tobacco and that's one excellent example of it Mm.
1: as you've mentioned you're focusing at the moment particularly around obesity tell us a little bit about the challenges specifically in South Africa
5: around um, creating change Mm -hmm. when it comes to obesity I mean, this is a very new venture for me as well. I've, I've never really thought about obesity work and it sort of found me as well. But the rates are increasing massively, right? And trying to – we're two and a half years into the project in South Africa. And just being two months on the job, I can see what the gaps are. One of the gaps is we don't have the capacity in terms of nutrition uh, nutrition experts, people f- uh, focusing on food security. One of our legal partners was telling me, you know, Shakira um, – we can we can assist on the legal side but we don't have legal experts focusing on this it's going to take us some time to find it so number one capacity isn't there number two if you compare land reform or land expropriation and obesity obesity is not seen as a priority for government uh, similar to other public health issues as well so i think those are some of the challenges and then the third one is Sometimes we have these projects which come from Western donors who say let's focus on obesity and rightly so it's a growing problem But then we face with the context in South Africa Yes, obesity is a big thing, but so is HIV and AIDS. Yes Obesity is big, but the person standing on the street can only afford McDonald's, you know Mm -hmm. So we've got that social context as well that we are grappling with and a lot of or lack of government focus on this. So they've got an obesity strategy which is in place. But other than the strategy, what has happened? So those are some of the complexities we're dealing with. And I love that you bring that up because so often when it comes to public health, what I'm
1: observing is that just telling someone they need to change their habits isn't helpful. If you mm-hmm. if if you aren't giving them clear ways of how to change their habits within their context so you can't say to somebody in an u- urban environment oh you should be growing all, all your own vegetables if mm-hmm. if they don't live in a place where that's possible or as you mentioned if they're not financially able to to buy anything healthy or they don't have access to nutritional information in their own language mm-hmm. then how far can we really get with, um, with these kind of interventions. Mm-hmm. On a different note, previously you've worked in, in um, sexual and reproductive health, specifically around teens. How is is that very, very particular when it comes to working around public health issues, specifically for a younger a younger population?
5: Mm-hmm. Firstly, I have to say it's very fun and it's very cool <laughs> uh, working with young people on the continent was was energizing, and a shout out to all of them. Um, I think what's happened over time and, you know, specifically focusing on HIV is we've got this sort of lethargy of we know the problems, but we still haven't cracked the code. And it's the same with young people, really. I go back to the same thing that we also look at, at young people as patients um, and, and considering how do we crack that patient code, which is still a problem, but young people specifically, and I have a few good lessons to share with uh, with you, is just give them a chance. Ask them, what do you want with your health care? And you'll be surprised at the answers that you will get, the innovation that you will get, the, the dynamism that will come as well. And another issue is resources. So we rolled out last year the Her Voice Fund project. And that project aimed to, so it was after consultations with young people. And young people said, look, it's only very senior professors who have access to resources. Or it's very, um, you know, it's very senior project managers who have access to resources. But if we had access to resources, we can run projects around our healthcare. And so we rolled out this program, it's a pilot program, and young people have access to 2,000 US dollars. And they're rolling out community-based projects on HIV, cracking the code on, on what health they want and how they want and the policies they want to influence. So again, give them a chance and tailor your programs to them by including them. what I love about that
1: is how local it is that that they are influencing their actual community. They already have a certain place They you know, probably the uncles and the aunts around them know them. So, you know, the other, the other teenagers or kids know them. So I could imagine that having quite a strong, deep impact in their local, in their local community. Mm-hmm. I'm so interested um, in the fact that, that your background academically is, um, is in demographics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so looking at specific statistical things around a population, whether that mm-hmm. might be income or births and deaths, that must
5: influence your work when it comes to public health well it's quite an interesting story of how i got into demography i had to um start earning some money basically i was a very poor student and uh demography as many people don't know and you don't grow up dreaming of being a demographer it's a scarce skill in south africa and in africa as well and it's extremely well paying uh but that aside it was fascinating to learn that the people who do your senses um every part of our life is affected by data how many Mm -hmm. listeners do you have on the show know um, and so similarly demography in public health really gave me that cutting edge because besides just understanding public health issues I'm able to say you know what's the Ebola uh, prevalence what's going on what's the HIV prevalence Adding that numerical uh, thinking to it that quantitative skill which is essential as well hmm.
1: now after after you finished your honors um, and your masters in in demography you you progressed to your PhD, which focused on financial management at a district health level in South Africa within the public health degree. What a great topic, what a great uh, you know area of study. What did you find out about how this financial management actually influences the medical realities of ordinary South, South Africans?
5: I'm glad you think it's interesting because my supervisor told me last year, Shakira, when you came with me uh, with that topic, I was like, oh my God, this is so boring. Um, (laughs) but jokes aside, you know, I think that there's been so much of focus on the supply side of the health system. So the nurses, the doctors, but you're not focusing like any organization. You need human resources, you need procurement, you need financial management. And that was my focus because I plan to be the minister of health one day. So to try and understand the whole system. And I think one of my participants put it very well to me. I can't remember everything right now, but you know, she said, "There's no such thing as financial management in the public health system. The money is imaginary. No one knows where it is. No one knows what it's being spent on." And I hate to say it, this was the excuse for it. I said, "Many, they moved the patients because they said." you know, they didn't have the resources. We're seeing the drug stockouts because they said they didn't have the resources. And the PhD really showed me is that, you know, the the simple debit and credits are not there. There's so many layers to the health system that somewhere this money is getting lost and it's not accounted for. And for me that's a big, big issue in our system.
1: Mm.
5: And there we get back to
1: this this crossroads of it's not enough to just have great science, to have great health theory and um, and you can have all of that and still fail your patients as a health system. What do you think obviously this is a very big question, but can you share some of your thoughts on on the bigger uh, the bigger challenges in South Africa around our health system? Mm -hmm. Perhaps
5: there's one thing you would change if you could. I mean, it's it's bothering me a lot, especially when I became a Woman of the Year. I asked, you know, the, it's great to have this award, but but my responsibility is again, how am I going to change the system? I don't have the answers right now, but I would say it's it's a multitude of things. The first thing I've observed is is the self interest, and I talked about it, the fragmentation. At some point, we all have to come together, experts, advocacy, government, everyone, and say. It's simple what are the problems in the system and how we're going to fix them let's move away from this big NHI bull and everything else Let, there's a crisis in the system and for me that's the big issue at the moment and so I'm trying to engage different stakeholders and saying what can we do about this crisis I don't know yet uh, but I hope that this will progress in some way and hopefully the next time we speak there won't be a crisis <sighs> Hopefully. We've been speaking to Dr. Shakira Shunara about
1: public health. Hopefully. One day she'll be our health minister, who knows? It sounds like you really, you are not just informed, but but passionate. So a little bit later in the show, we'll be digging deeper into her personal journey that brought her to this point um, in her career, but also um, in in her role as, as a science advocate and a public health advocate. But if you really want to know about someone, it's good to not only hear... Uh, from them right true and that's why we got someone else who knows her a little bit better to
2: talk to us and this person is glory glory sorry uh mahali yes i can't say the surname there we we go. go who has worked with shikara and this is what she had to say about her
6: I worked with her when she was working with SAT, SRHR African Trust. We are uh, working at IANASO, Eastern African National Networks of AIDS and Services Organization. We worked together on the project called Her Voice Fund. Is when we met since January 2018 and since there is when I get to know Shakira. What I can say, Shakira, for the short period of time I have worked with, uh, shes I can say she, she is a woman who is very determined, who is passionate on what she is doing, especially on the youth. She is an activist on health issues. But mostly she's she's a person who you can easily work with, who you can easily ask anything you want. She's helpful. She is kind of a, a role model to most of the youth. If you, you don't know anything and you need assistance from her, she's ready to help anytime. She's ready to help regardless of any kind of your status, regardless you you are in uh, that high status or low status, you are older or young, that's all I can say. She's ready to help. She's ready to assist in anything you want or you need, so long as she is able to do that. I can say what I have learned from Shakira is that if you want to be someone, you can be the sky is the only limit. You can do anything you wish to do. It's just that you need to work hard and you need to focus on what you want. First of all, yes, sure. I can say thank you, Shakira, so much. Ever since we met, you have been very helpful to me in most of the issues, work-wise, but also social-wise. We had very good time together so thank you so much and please let's keep in touch so long as we are not working together at the same organization but i hope we will keep in touch and so that we will assist both of us to reach our goals on what we aim to
1: that was Glory Makahali speaking about Shakira Shonara, um, and and just speaking very nice words about you, Shakira,
5: your um, your previous colleague. Do you have anything to to counter to add? So the grant I was talking about, where we rolled out across 13 African countries, bringing young people resources. Glory and I worked together on on seeing that through so so it was fantastic to hear from her and I was sort of her mentor as well so it's, it's really great thank you tell us a little bit about how big these teams are in public health it doesn't sound like a one-man show well, it really depends where you are in the organisation you're working on um, or in, and I suppose the NGO space. I find the research space a little bit better resourced with more researchers, more you know, more brains, really more people. Um, but the advocacy space, where funding is is limited. Last year, for example, I ran youth programs all by myself, so that was quite a big task. This year, working on obesity prevention again, I'm the only coordinator in South Africa. So I'm finding my feet and trying to figure out how am I going to make a success of this project being all by myself. So staff meetings are a little bit lonely. <laughs> Just you. It's myself in the washing machine at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) We are
1: featuring a scientist today, Dr. Shikura Tunara. We've been speaking about public health, but now let's spend some time focusing on her as a person and a scientist.
2: Yes, now we want to get to know you a little better as a person. Get the people involved in who you are. So it's pretty clear that you're very passionate about improving the healthcare system in our country. And this passion has driven, has been driven by at least part of your childhood experiences. Please share
5: with us how this has influenced you. Sure. So, you know, I think I've gotten a bit stronger over time. Usually I cry when I say the story. Um, So my dad lost his vision about 20 or so years ago. And for a disabled person to navigate a healthcare facility like Baragwana is next to impossible. He was diagnosed with a heart condition about, um, you know, 15 or so years ago. I was quite young at the time. Um, My younger brother and I wouldn't go to school when he would go to Baragwana. I think my brother was quite happy not to go to school. (laughs) Um, And so we went with my dad. And, you know, the, the first time my dad stayed in hospital, I don't even have the words to describe it. He was put in the prison ward, ward 16 of Baragwana, right? Because they had no beds. Um, He was also put on a bed uh, that had linen, which was urinated on. And that night we left my dad and I thought to myself, is he even going to be okay? Then you also see that the nurses are not really in tune with the patient, far more a patient who's disabled. You then see the regular, you know, the bathrooms, which are in a terrible state. Um, you see the you, you see the healthcare facility at, at first hand, and so going with my dad to bearer often really gave me that insight into the health system, and and it really led me to say, I don't want to be a doctor per se, but I want to make sure that every other patient in South Africa and in the world never goes through that again and then a couple of years ago you know my grand couldn't afford medical aid as well and she she was taken to Laritong Hospital again there were no beds you'd get into a room where there was so many patients either on one bed on the floor it was a Saturday night in Laritong there's my grand my heart you know you, you're seeing patients come in with the glass in their head and you realize what the healthcare facility looks like it wasn't even clean the next day my grand unfortunately passed away because the hospital didn't have oxygen Um, and and so for me those are two key moments that I've never really spoken about but which I started to reflect a, a lot about after getting all the accolades last year to say why am I in this this you know and for me i keep reminding myself sometimes um, i may get in trouble with department of health sometimes i go to healthcare facilities just to see what's going on there how long are the patients waiting you mm. know my own sort of research or observation because i think it brings me back to the ground to say yes your projects are important and the fame's important and it's fantastic but what's really happening and ground yourself and how do you go back there
2: Wow, that is quite a deep-rooted story. I can understand why this passion practically oozes out of you as you speak. And obviously it's showing in all the things that you've achieved. So how old were you when you realized that, you know what, this is what I want to do. I want to fix this healthcare system.
5: You know, I think it's not even just the healthcare system. I don't know how to explain it or I'm not sure if other people feel the same way, but I know that when um, growing up, I would read about South Africa's democracy and I would read about how much we've achieved as well. Um, I always had this feeling to to make a better South Africa, to contribute to a better South Africa. And so the one moment that stands out in, in, in my in my head is when I was in grade four, it was my birthday, and we sang and it was my cake, and the teacher asked, um, you know, Shakira, what what's your wish? And I said, I wish to be the president of South Africa. So hopefully the future minister of health And then the president, but that was great for, and everybody really, really laughed at me. But my dream is just to make this country better, not only the healthcare system.
2: Wow, like that is amazing, and I, I am totally behind you with this whole dream. I will back you all the way. And another thing that you also you had to uh, be exposed to as you were working in the health sector was uh, the vulnerability of women and girls. Mm -hmm. And in your field of work, you've dealt with cases where young girls were forced into marriage and exposed to violence. Now, what insight did you gain from dealing with young girls in these situations?
5: You know, I was sitting at a conference in Mapuche last year when it hit me how real women's experiences are. It was a a conference on ending child marriage. And there was a 10 year old girl then, I can't remember her name. But she talked about how she tried to leave her child marriage and her parents wouldn't let her because if you leave the child marriage, you either divorced or you have the stigma, but also the parents don't want to give the you know, the money back that they had for the bride, etc. Eventually she managed to leave her husband. Um, actually the first time she tried to leave her husband, someone offered her an education um, and she tried to go to school and when she came home, he beat her up so badly. The second time she just left him and she ran and ran and ran. And she ended up at a healthcare facility um, in Mozambique where. Um where no one could, where there were no beds, the the infrastructure was really bad, etc. And that night she didn't know where to go. There was no social workers. The healthcare workers didn't help her. So she even told the story of how she took the clothes off her back and she made a a, a pillow and she slept outside this health facility for three weeks Mm -hmm. until someone found her. And this is a 10 year old. I mean, I thought to myself, if this happened to me in you know I'm in my 20s how would I feel but a 10-year-old and I went home that night and I cried because that story made me realize this is Africa this is what's happening and it shouldn't be happening
2: indeed it really is happening around the world it is a real problem a crisis that I think we're not too sure how to tackle we're very aware of it but now integrating this into the healthcare system how does that happen because it's so isolated on its own as an issue Mm -hmm. so now when you look at this issue how would you integrate it into
5: healthcare healthcare in general I mean, there's so many issues linked to women and girls. The biggest one is contraception. And I think we're very fortunate in South Africa. We don't tap into all our resources or, you know, as patients, but we have contraception. We have abortion. uh, We have those services available to us. So if you're in a child marriage, you need those sort of services. In other parts of the world, there's laws against You getting contraception if you're that young so that's where I would tie it in but one thing that is missing is the mental health the psychological well-being of this this girl when she was eventually seen I very much doubt I can't say for sure but I very much doubt that anyone asked her, are you okay do you want to talk about it you know they probably treated her from let's look at you know were you raped what sort of do you have HIV that sort of thing which is important but what about her psychological well-being
2: and that is definitely something that people don't pay attention to a lot of the time. And now, as a, as a figure that people look up to at this point, what do you have to say? What words of wisdom can you say to our listeners out there who want to achieve
5: as much as you have someday in their lives? I mean, I think I'll achieve when I see the health system crisis sorted out. But I was at a a, a Bachelor of Health Sciences lecture the other day about a career session, and I was so disappointed to see that all people care about is jobs. And yes, you don't blame people because we socialize that way. What's your job? What's going to be your income? What's your eight to five? But let's face it, that's not going to change the world. Mm -hmm. The question you have to ask yourself is, what is my dream? What is my purpose? And how am I going to change the world? And believe that you can do it. If you think about the eight to five, you know, you're going to live your life. You may get rich. You may be miserable. I don't know. But you're not going to change the world. (laughs) That is true. That is definitely true. And if
2: you do what you love, there's always someone out there who likes that thing too. So. You have, you'll have some sort of fan base around you as well. So that's definitely something that people should do.
1: Today on the show, we've been having an incredible converse- uh, conversation with Dr. Shakira Tunora. Thank you so much for being on the show
5: with us. I always love being on radio and t v in fact, my dream is to be an issidingo if things don't work out.
1: Maybe they need some <laughs> public health <laughs> advice who knows you can be you can be the first world's first public health <laughs> slash soap opera. It's possible. who knows? maybe there's a job out there for you somewhere, but i I think you're doing pretty well where you are <laughs> uh we've been speaking to her. For the whole um, for the whole hour, it's been a really good conversation. We'll have another feature scientist in one month's time. We have a big team behind the scenes. Specifically, our production is by Bridget Leppe, uh, Gloria Mabuza, and Harmony Molefe. You've been listening to myself, um, Alna Schutz, and Debuchang Madisha. The Science Side is produced by the Vitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Join us again next week. The Science
4: Inside Podcast.